Chess is pure strategy. It's just one board, 32 pieces, two opponents. May the best player win. And since, you know, there's no luck baked into the game, and it always starts with the same exact setup, it means that people have spent, spent countless hours, just countless hours, studying the strategy of the game and trying to figure out, given any possible board position, what the optimal move is. When I started playing, though, I was pretty bad. I'm still pretty bad. But when I started playing, I was really bad. And I noticed that I often didn't really know why I lost the game. You know, sure, they put me in checkmate. But how did it get to that point? You know, how were they able to capture more of my pieces? Or how were they able to put me in some sort of awkward position where I couldn't find a good move and get out of it? Well, I was, I was playing online, and the software, thankfully, had uh, this way that you could analyze the game, where after the game you could go back and you can look and you could see what were the great moves you made, what the terrible moves you made were. And sometimes I'd be like, wow, I made the best possible move there, but it was totally luck. Or sometimes I'd make a move that I thought was a great move, but it was actually a terrible move. Like my win percentage chance would go from like 90 to 10%. I'd be like, what? I thought that was a great move. And I didn't know why. And so I started watching videos. I started reading articles. I didn't go so far as to read books, but I re read articles and watched videos about people who really knew what they were talking about, that had really studied the game. And they talk about theory and strategy. And they'd show why certain moves might look really good, but actually they were terrible because they opened up some sort of vulnerability. And they provided this framework for how to think about the game so that in, if I was in some situation I'd never seen before, I had a framework to figure out what a good move was without just kind of making some random decision. And life can often be like this. You know, we end up in a tight spot we don't really know how we got there. You know, sure, we can follow the series of events, but it doesn't really explain, like, how or why we got where we are. And even worse, we have no idea how to get out. We have no idea how to get out of the situation. It seems hopeless. We're stuck. You know, we try and we try to come up with ideas and solutions, but nothing seems to work. Our psalm today finds David in a terrible place and explains how he got out. And it shows that how he got out is a framework for how we should approach our lives. Before we turn to the psalm, let's pray. Heavenly Father, many of the people hearing my words this morning are going through some difficult season. You know, for some, it's a self-made position. Their mistakes have led them to a dark place. For others, you know, it's not because of any particular mistake of theirs, but simply because we live in a broken world. I ask that this morning, you'll show all of us that you're the bringer of hope, that you shine in the darkness. I thank you that the darkness is not an unfamiliar place to you and that you've defeated it. While we're waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of what Christ has done, help us to trust in you. Amen. While many of the psalms are standalone psalms, you know, where you just read one chapter and it's sort of isolated from the rest, 
Some of them actually form sections where it's a group of psalms that have a common theme. In Psalm 40, our psalm today fits within a group. Psalm 37 through 40 have a common theme of waiting. In 30, Psalm 37, David is in the midst of extreme hardship. It talks about his troubles and then the solution, which is to wait for the Lord. Verses 7 through 9 of Psalm 37 say this, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. This psalm is for those who are surrounded by difficulties that could potentially overwhelm them. It says that waiting for God is our only option in those moments and seasons. And then Psalms 38 and 39 apply that knowledge. 38.15 says, But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. Psalm 38 in particular explores waiting for God while external hardships are pressing in from the outside. Then Psalm 39 7 through 8 says, And now, O Lord, for who do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. It's applying waiting for God to rescue from our own mistakes and their consequences. It's saying the consequences of my sin should naturally make even fools look down on me. But God, make it not so. Instead, deliver me from my sin. Now, in our psalm today, Psalm 40, we see the result of this waiting. We see the culmination of waiting for God. The psalm gives us a framework for what happens when we wait for God. And really, it's a framework um, for just how we should live our lives. And so, what this framework is, is I'm going to give a sentence, and we're going to be going through this sentence as our outline today. So if you like outlines, if you like roadmaps, you can write this sentence down, and we're going to look at first the first half of the sentence and the second half of the sentence. And the sentence is, God delivers us, and we proclaim. God delivers us, and then we proclaim. Let's look at the first half of the sentence. God delivers us. So this psalm you know, is continuing the theme of the previous several psalms with the first verse. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. This waiting David describes here, it's not a completely passive waiting. You know, it's not a lie back on the couch, kick up his feet waiting. There's no way it could be because David has been in anguish for several psalms. He's bent over, his hands are in his head, hands are on his head. He's, you know, pacing the room. He's yelling up to God. He's not waiting out of laziness. He's waiting out of necessity. David's in a terrible place. In verse 2, he says that he's in a pit of desolation, a miry bog. He's in a terrible place, and he knows it. You know, David's actually a pretty amazing guy. We see later in verse 7 and 8, he says of himself, he says, 
Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. That's pretty strong language. You know, we don't often read something like that in Scripture about someone other than God. And Scripture describes him as a man after God's own heart. You know, if anyone could get themselves out of a dark spot, it'd be David. And in fact, that used to be his job. He played music for his predecessor, King Saul, when King Saul was in his dark moods. So David is positioned better than anyone else to get himself out of the pit of desolation, and yet he waits. He waits for someone else to do it because he knows that's his only hope. David knows that his problems are much bigger than what he can fix himself. As we've seen from Psalm 38 and 39, and we'll later see in this psalm, he's in a bad spot both because of, you know, the world is a broken place and because he himself is broken. In contrast, God is a totally different being. He's outside the realm of brokenness that exists all around us. You know, he's not damaged, he's not self-destructive, and he's not hopeless. He's whole, pure, and the source of his own strength. Logically, he would have nothing to do with David. Yet how does God respond to him? David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Even though God is an entirely different being altogether, he listens to David's cry. We all want to be pursued in some way, whether it's by a parent, a romantic partner, a job recruiter, a mentor. You know, the idea of someone coming along that is valuable to us in some way, choosing us, and then improving our situation is a really comforting idea. And not just improving our situation, but massively transforming it. You know, all sorts of stories are hinged on the person that's living a boring, mundane, meaningless life, suddenly being caught up by some external force into something grand and some big adventure that causes their life to be meaningful. You know, that's a common theme because on some level, we can all relate to that desire to have an outside force make us important, to give us a meaningful life. Every fantasy is a rescue fantasy. Every fantasy, whether financial, academic, sexual, relational, a sports fantasy, an early retirement fantasy, whatever, every fantasy is a rescue fantasy being rescued from something, and being rescued to something. This week, an article came out called America's New Favorite Pastime, The Lottery. In the last few days, Americans have spent hundreds of millions of dollars on lottery tickets. You know, anytime there's an economic downturn, lottery sales go up. And any time a lottery jackpot, you know, starts getting really big, more and more people buy into it. If you look at a graph, it's just like the curve is exponential. And why is that? Well, this is how the article puts it. Fantasies of dynastic wealth are one of the few things you can buy with $2 these days. That's what it's about. 
No, no matter how you break down the numbers on someone's chances of winning and how unlikely it is, there's this really strong emotional appeal to the idea that your life could be transformed in an instant. And not just your life, but the life of your entire family, including your family that's not even born yet. It's not about the money, but what we believe the money will bring us. The idea of being rescued from our problems and being rescued to some new reality where our desires are fulfilled and really our whole lives are fulfilled is incredibly powerful. We're constantly receiving messages from the world about what will save us from our problems. I think it's most obvious in commercials. You know, I was talking to a friend recently about car commercials and how you can see cultural values in them. You know, not too long ago, just like a few years ago, car commercials always showed the car driving around in the city, especially at night. There's this message being sent that, like, if you buy this car, you'll be important, you'll be powerful, you'll be, like, right in the middle of the action, and you'll be the one making it happen. But now, almost every car commercial is out in the country. It's, like, out in the wilderness. They're driving through the mountain pass, and they pull up to the trailhead, and they're getting out of the car, and they're all laughing and smiling, and, like, you know, they're like looking at each other as they're pulling their camping gear out. And it's sending this message that if you buy this car, you won't be stuck at home, isolated, staring at your screen. Instead, you'll be out with your friends and you'll be doing something adventurous and fun in nature. You can see those cultural values there. You know, and these message are, messages are most obvious in commercials, but they're everywhere we look. People everywhere are sending signals about what will make you happy, about what will fulfill you. Everything from get rich quick, to starting a successful company, to cures for illness, to trying to look a certain way, to sports, pornography, TV shows, video games, creative hobbies. You know, there's all these people promoting and searching for something to rescue them, to get them out of the miry bog. When you're in darkness, whether it's for a moment, a day, a month, a year, a decade, a lifetime, what is it you put your hope in? What is it that you're waiting for to save you? In verse 2, David tells us the result of his waiting. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. And set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. God is the active one in this relationship. You know, he isn't sitting on the sidelines watching David's life as a spectator. He's right in the action. And not just as a major character, but as the main character. He's the hero. You know, this psalm could be thought of as the damsel in distress's response to the prince, to the prince's saving. You know, David waited, and God showed up and delivered him from darkness. So how, how did God do it? How does God save him? This is important. You know, if we're in a pit of desolation, knowing how someone else got out is vital knowledge. We can see that through the passage, through this theme, the theme that's our sentence today. God delivers us. It's completely by his actions. It's completely by what he has done. In verse 6, David says something that's 
really strange on first glance. He says, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. You know, God was very explicit and clear in his instruction to the Israelites about the sacrifices they were to complete. And we can see throughout scripture how much God cares about us listening to him. So why would David say this? Well, the key is in the phrase, you have given me an open ear. To hear he's rightly prioritizing what God has commanded. God has opened David's ear to the reality that God isn't interested in people going through the motions, following the letter of the law without giving all of themselves to him. He, car- he cares far more about what's in our hearts than an empty action. You know, simply going to church, saying prayers, singing songs, confessing, doesn't delight God if we're doing it because we think that we can please him by checking boxes. As we talked about you know, previously, he recognizes the difference between us, and he wants us to recognize it too. We're, I'm, I'm going to say this sentence, and I want you to, to hear me out all the way through, but we're far worse than we can ever imagine. As evil as you think you are, as bad as you think you've messed up, you're actually far worse. We all deserve death for what we've done. Self-affirmation, you know, is so popular in our age because if your hope is yourself, you can't really be honest about how bad you are. But our deliverance is not through downplaying or denying our sin. It's not by telling ourselves that we're not so bad. Our deliverance is in being honest to God. He doesn't delight in sacrifices and offerings because if we think that That'll be enough to undo our mistakes. We're so wrong. When we come to him, he doesn't say like, oh, you know, don't worry about it. You know, we'll, we'll pretend that that, doesn't, that didn't happen. Or, you know, oh, that's not so bad. He says, okay, that is what you've done. And I forgive you. If you haven't seen the movie The Mighty Ducks, you definitely should. It was filmed in the Twin Cities and actually the final game of the movie was filmed at the New Hope Ice Arena, so if you want to relive one of hockey's most glorious moments, you can go there and skate on the ice. The movie, it starts with the main character, Gordon, missing the game-winning penalty shot in his peewee hockey game. It was the championship game. Um, And it might seem like that isn't that big of a deal, right? It's a peewee hockey game. But the thing is, you know, his team lost the game. They came in second place, and his coach would never let it go. His team always won the championship. And as an adult, flashing forward, Gordon's, he's, he's at the, the hockey stadium, and he sees the long l- line of championship banners from his previous peewee team, says champs, 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 second place, champs, champs, champs. And the camera zooms in on that second place banner. And his eyes just fix on it. It's the one that could have said champs if he had scored that goal, but it says second place. 
And his old coach comes up beside him and he says, Ah, boy. I wish they would just take that one down. Don't you? When he says the don't you, he looks over at Gordon and he has this glint in his eye. He says it with a smirk. He's twisting the knife. He's digging it in. Don't you just wish wish they would take that one down? We have an accuser that does that. His name's Satan. He loves to point out to us, and he loves to point out to God, like, look at your mistakes. Don't you just wish you could undo that? That's not who God is. See, God, when he looks at our sin and our banners, he doesn't shame us like our accuser does. Instead, he comes up beside us, he puts his arm around us, and he says, here, I'll fix it. And he takes down all of our banners, regardless of what they are, and he replaces it with a single massive banner. This banner says, champs of all time. It's his banner. It's the banner that we sit under. We're on his team. And he's scored the ultimate winning shot. You know, we don't need to hide our banners from God. We don't need to downplay them. We don't need to pretend like they're not, you know, that... They didn't get put up. Because he already knows. He wants us to show them to him. To show our failures. So that when they're removed and they're taken down, we don't have this dirty little secret that we didn't tell him about. You know, some banners hiding in the back closet. You know, no, instead he wants us to show them to him so that when he throws them away and they're removed, they're just, they're gone forever, and we don't have to worry about it. We find healing not in self-affirmation, not in telling ourselves, you know, we've done good enough. We, we find healing by opening up and being honest about our mistakes. And you know what? Your sin won't shock God. Whatever your sin is, it's not going to shock God because he already knows. And he went on to that cross, well not that cross, but he went on to a cross knowing your deepest, darkest secret. That sin that you stuffed in the back closet in a box, he knew about that before he went up onto a cross and died for you. Other believers should also be involved in this process. Because they can show us that our sin is common. That being broken is not unique to you. I know we all want to be special, but you're not the only person that's broken. We all are. And there's hope for those who are special, who are broken. Verses 6 through 8 say, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. These verses are quoted in Hebrews 10, where they're connected directly to Christ. The sacrifices God prescribed in the Old Testament were a precursor to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. Because of what he's done, we don't need to participate in offerings any longer. He's covered over our mistakes. God didn't delight in empty following of his commands before Christ, and he still doesn't. 
In verses 7 and 8, we see Davidic typology. A type is a recurring theme that's pointing forward to a greater version of itself. And that's Christ. He delighted to do God's will on an even greater level. Matthew 26 says, and this is, this is right before Jesus was arrested and went to the cross. This is, what, this is what Matthew 26 says. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. We fail to do God's will all the time. If there's someone that followed God's will perfectly, all the way to a cross where he died, not because of what he did, but because of what we did. And he doesn't regret that. Before the creation of the world, he knew he would be on that cross. He knew he would die for your sins, and yet he created. No matter where we're at, he can deliver us. And this brings us to our second section. First we had, God delivers us. Now our second section, and we proclaim. In verse 3, David responds to God's actions. He says, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Throughout the Old Testament, singing a new song to God is often in response to a new expression of God's power and grace. In Revelation 5, the author John describes how God's holding a scroll in his hand. And it's covered in seals. And if someone's to open it, if someone's to break the seals, it means bringing it to pass, bringing it to fulfillment. And God's looking for someone to, who's worthy to break these seals, looking for someone who's worthy to open it, but no one is worthy. And John just starts to weep. Because this means that God's ultimate plan can't come to pass because no one's worthy to carry it out. And then the lion and the lamb Christ himself appears and he opens the scroll. And those witnessing these events, they bow down and they sing a new song to Christ. They sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What God has done is so great. His plan of grace is so amazing. And Christ made it possible so they can't help but sing a new song to God praising him. And in our passage, David is doing the same thing. He's singing a new song. And what happens? It causes others to trust in the Lord. By hearing the personal testimony of David, others then believe that God can deliver them from the miry bog. The individual experience of being saved by God reverberates to the community around the person to impact and help other people. There's this clear link between verse 3 and 4. It says, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. 
Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Hearing others' testimonies helps us to put our trust in God. And those who place their trust in God are blessed. Anywhere else that we can place our trust will let us down. The promises of this world to save us, the promises of our fantasies to rescue us are a lie. Instead, the Lord is our trust. The power of Christ's saving work on the cross, made known through our proclamation, will transform us and those around us, turning us from the lies of sin to the truth of Scripture. Revelation 12 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have, been, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their own lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, in you who dwell in them. We have an accuser, the devil, who loves to tell God about our sin. He loves to remind God about what we deserve, but God has said, enough. He knows about our sin, he knows what we deserved, and he's delivered us from it. We overcome our enemy by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony, a testimony of how God has delivered us through Jesus' blood. God delivers us and we proclaim. We proclaim his grace. We proclaim his mercy. We proclaim how good and how great he is. And now to finish up our time, we're going to take a quick look at the second half of the psalm where we see a need for ongoing deliverance. In verses 11 through 17, we see how David still has problems in his life. Major problems. Experiencing suffering is a normative part of the Christian life. We're to expect suffering. When we're in the miry bog, it's sometimes because of our own sin, yet often it's because we simply live in a broken world. We live in a sinful world. Throughout our lives, we'll experience darkness. And in those times, we need to hold on to the hope we have in Christ. Our hope is not what this world has to offer, but instead it's an eternity with Christ. In verses 9 through 10, David has this, it's like a love song to God. It says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Why is he so concerned about doing this? Why is he so concerned about proclaiming what God has done? Well, it's because he knows of this need of ongoing deliverance for every believer. 
David Brainerd lived in the 18th century, back when the U.S. was still a colony of Great Britain. And after becoming a Christian at the age of 21, his great desire was to be a pastor. And he was attending Yale, and during that time there was a lot of theological tension between students and professors. The great awakening was occurring, and students saw that the gospel of grace was the only way to be saved. And because of this growing theological rift between students and faculty, the, the school made a rule that students couldn't speak negatively about faculty's theology. And Brainerd was expelled because he made a passing comment of, about a tutor. He said that the tutor had no more grace than a chair. And because he refused to make a public apology about it, he stood by his words, he was expelled. And in those days, you know, there weren't many seminaries in the colonies. And to get ordained, you had to attend either Yale, Harvard, or a European college. And since he'd been expelled from Yale, you know, it was out of the question to attend one of those schools. And so un unable to become an ordained minister, a friend encouraged him to become a missionary to Native Americans. And so Brainerd began riding his horse you know, outside where the white settlers were and going and preaching the word to Native Americans. During his ministry, he faced incredible amounts of hunger, physical illness, loneliness, depression, and a lack of passion for ministry. He'd sit riding on horseback for hour after hour through rain and cold, feeling physically and emotionally miserable, but he always praised God. And after a few years of people seeing his faithful ministry, you know, he's offered pastorships in much more comfortable places, but he said he couldn't leave his ministry. You know, living in comfort, surrounded by friends, they were not his hope. His only hope was Christ, and he couldn't imagine anything other than proclaiming the gospel to those who didn't believe. The last year of his life, his illness became too strong, and he couldn't go out any longer. Yet even then, he continued to praise God, and he ministered to his host. He died at the age of 29. But his life was not in vain. Two men that had tried to get Brainerd readmitted into Yale decided to start their own college out of the frustration of the situation, hoping to start a college that held the true theology. And that college became known as Princeton. Some other academics were inspired by his ministry to Native Americans, and they started Dartmouth. But the greatest legacy of his life isn't prestigious universities, but it, rather it's what it in, how it inspired other people's faith, including my own, if you can't tell. <laughs> Brainerd died at Jonathan Edwards' Edwards's house. And so Edwards was a preacher that had this resounding impact on the spiritual life of people throughout the colonies. And he found Brainerd's journal 
is a journal that praised God continually through all sorts of hardships. Brainerd said that he faced depression before he was a Christian and after he became a Christian. But the depression after he became a Christian was different because under the surface, there was a solid foundation that he stood on. Edwards published a biography on Brainerd in this book about a man who died young after facing darkness and difficulty and pain of every kind. It's inspired countless Christians to willingly suffer for the gospel, to turn their back on the promises of this world and instead fix their eyes on the cross because they read how God had placed his feet on solid rock. His legacy is not the result of some grand plan to have as big of an impact as possible. His legacy is the result of facing continual hardship with this vital truth in mind. God delivers us and we proclaim. Every week we come to this table as a reminder of what Christ has done. We can come to this table open and honest about what we've done and who we are. There's understanding and grace at this table. Coming up to this table is a proclamation that we place our trust in the Lord, that we're waiting for him as our deliverer, even if we do so imperfectly. If you're waiting for something else to rescue you, I ask you, why not Christ? Look to him as your deliverer. Let's partake of the Lord's table. You can come up, you can receive the elements and bring them back to your seat. We'll take them together.